Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get to Ira Jersey. He's the interest rate dude um, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Ira, if I'm the Fed here, if I'm Jay Powell, I got to continue to fight inflation. But I got a market that's spooked out there about the whole banking system. What do I do next week? Yeah, it, it winds up becoming a massive communication challenge. So um, I think that the, the Federal Reserve will hike 25 basis points and then um, say that, you know, we're ready to step in to provide, be the lender of last resort, as is our mandate. And we do care about financial stability. So I think, but, but like you said, you know, with, with inflation still running at, you know, four-tenths a month, um, on on uh, the headline inflation, there's very little reason to think that the Fed's actually going to cut. You know, I know that there's at least one one or two banks out there saying that maybe the Fed's going to cut interest rates because of the financial stability issues. I, I that's not going to happen. They're not going to cut. Um, much more likely to pause and then say we might restart hiking later um, than they would be to actually lower interest rates because. I think I've told you before, Paul, you know, I think we still have a Fed put, but that Fed put is very far out of the money because inflation still is their their key mandate. Yeah, I'm, we should remind uh, our listeners that inflation did come in hotter than expected if you're looking at the core number for CPI. So CPI X food and energy month over month was up 0.5%. We were looking for a gain of 0.4%. And it's also higher than the 0.4% gain that we saw in the previous month. So it's still a problem. Um, by the time we get to the Fed meeting, so you think they're going to hike another 25 basis points, that puts them at the upper range 5%, so 475 to 5. And uh, market's still pricing in just a, a smidge more than that, or it was a second ago in May. Do you think we're going to get another hike after that? Do they need to go to higher than 5 um, in terms of the target rate, or is that going to be the, the ceiling? Well, Matt, I, I've been I've been talking to you about the, the fact that I think that now they're in calibration mode. So I think it really depends on the the data, and also at now you have to think the financial stability situation going forward, right? So if if in the environment where they hike to five percent and then they um, they get a string of okay, maybe we get point threes, for example, on on CPI, um, and then we get um, additional volatility in the banking sector. Then, then that's a situation where the Fed may actually pause. But, but I think that you know, cumulatively, they've obviously increased interest rates. You know, nearly, <laughs> nearly five percent, um, and and you know that's quite a bit. And and so I think at this point, taking a pause and then saying, look, we're not going to be cutting anytime soon. And and I think that's the important point that that Jay Powell has to make is, look, we're still fighting inflation, even if we stop. Uh, hiking interest rates, that doesn't mean that we're immediately going to be cutting. Um, there was at one point yesterday we were price, pricing for 75 basis points of interest rate cuts this year. And so so first, get those out of the market. And, and if you can get those out of the market, then I think that, um, that, that you know, uh, policy might be calibrated appropriately, right? If we have, it, 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 think about this, Matt, 0.4%, annualize that, it's 4.8%. That's exactly what, basically where the Fed funds rate is going to be after they hike one more time. So they can say, hey, we're at, you know, we're basically at a neutral Fed funds rate. Now we have to convince everyone that, hey, we're not going to be cutting until that goes much lower. Is financial stability really still a problem? I mean, uh, you know, SVB had an unbelievable duration mis mismatch plus an incredibly uniform depositor base and plus now you know there's no limit to um, deposit insurance it's whatever you have in any financial institution that's regulated so uh, is there any reason to think that we have a, a financial stability problem um well you do in so far as if people don't have um their own uh 
uh, if they're not confident in their financial institution, they might still pull their deposits out, right? And that, that's that's your typical bank run, and that's basically what happened to SVB. But now they um, can, right? The Fed's got your back. Well, yeah. So, so but, but keep in mind, like, even during the financial crisis, the depositors rarely lose money in bank workouts. And, and I think that it's showing that the regulatory environment is working. And, and the, the reason is, is because now you have all these other capital layers below depositors where, you know, equity holders and bondholders and preferred equity holders, all of those people, you know, will potentially lose a lot of money, if not all of their money, um, in, in their investments in those institutions, but, the, but to make the depositors whole. Um, so, you know, you go back and look at uh, watching the Mutual or IndyMac, you know, those were kind of some of the earlier banks that, that failed during the financial crisis. And even their depositors, um, even their, some of their large depositors, they were mostly made whole. So, so keep in mind that, that when we talk about the deposit insurance being up there, it's not so much deposit insurance. The, the, the regulators in bank workouts always try to make the depositors whole as much as they can. Um, it's, you're only guaranteed to do that up to the FDIC limit, right? So, um, so, so you have to keep that in mind. But, but, but I think that there is still a risk that people are, you know, get nervous and they want to pull their money out of some certain banks that maybe they're not so sure about that they'll right. be able to get their money in a timely fashion. Yep. I think that that's, that still remains a risk today. All right, Ira, uh, it's March Madness, so I don't know how much free time I'm going to have here. But if I catch one soccer match over the next several days, what, which one is it? Uh, yeah, you know, I hate to say this. I have not looked at the fixture list for this weekend. Um, so that's really? absolutely horrible of me. Well, um, all right, well, give us the 30, give us the, the 10 seconds. Was something else going on? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Ray Al Central, well, New Jersey. Do I come down and catch a game? Yeah, yeah, we we have a we have a match. We're playing Philadelphia Soccer Club this weekend, and if we uh, we win, we'll we'll uh, move up to third place. We 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 had a cup game this weekend, that unfortunately we lost one nil to a very good team uh, from the Jersey Shore. But if yeah, if we win this game, we'll uh, we'll jump up into third place and and have a shot at second. So we're we're trying to move up the table here. Real Central New Jersey. How about that, kids? You can check that out uh, if you're in the area. Ira Jersey uh, Soccer Club magnet as well as a interest rate strategist for bloomberg intelligence he brings it all we're gonna have more coming up this is bloomberg success is more than the final destination it's a path you take one step at a time it's discipline it's teamwork and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition it's what stiefel's been doing for over 130 years Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's do a little tech roundtable here. There's a lot of news out there. Of course, SVB. Then this morning we had the layoffs coming out of Meta. Uh, so lots to talk about. So we got a couple of our smart tech geeks joining us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Dan Ives, Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. Uh, and Mandeep Singh, Senior Tech Analyst for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, both here in our studio here. Hey, Dan, let's start with just SVB, the fallout for the Valley. Some of the tech companies I know you cover. I know you're tight with all the, the folks in the Valley and the venture capital stuff. What's how are you getting business done day to day? Look, they were the godfather of Silicon Valley banking. And, and I think that the impact here is going to be for, I think, many years to come in terms of for the startups and for the tech world. So even though this has been ring fence in terms of the actual SVP situation, I think it's really going to be a big change from a financing perspective, uh, what's happened in the startup community. Well, mm. do you think someone eventually comes in and takes that role? I mean, one bank um, 
you know, reclaims the mantle of Silicon Valley Godfather in terms of, you know, Sandhill uh, customers? I think in theory, but I just don't see that it's going to happen because right now the risk, especially with so many of these companies burning cash, spending money is like 1980s rock stars. <laughs> SVP has obviously been a, super, a black eye. And now what's going to happen is you're going to see VCs that are going to, of course, be much more reliant in terms of from a funding perspective. And then a lot of the venture funding that they did, a lot of the venture financing that SVP did, no big center money bank is going to do that or regional. And that's going to be the issue now going forward. I think it's going to catalyze M&A. I think big tech's going to accelerate that. And clearly there's many on the outside looking in. I think that hubris is now going to start to be over in terms of valuation haircuts. Talking about hubris maybe coming out of the valley, Meta laying off 10,000 employees. Mandeep, just real simply, what does this mean for the investment and the pivot towards the metaverse for our good friends at Facebook? So, so far, what they have said is uh, they're focused on efficiencies in the core business. They're not curtailing their ambitions on the metaverse side, although uh, I think you can see how they are reducing their hiring for this year, and they talked about you know the open roles going away. So clearly, uh, there is focus on efficiencies, but my point over there is more around their R&D expense. They spend about $35 billion a year Compare that to Apple and Microsoft's R&D expense, it's around 25 billion. So why is Facebook or Meta spending more when their revenue base is like half or even uh, you know, one fourth of Apple size? And I think that's where mm. all the tech companies are looking at their fixed costs and saying, do we really need to spend that much? And I think Meta is clearly leading that. So Dan, what do you think about that move? Um, and it seems to me that Mark Zuckerberg at least is squaring himself up with investors who are worried about an interest rate regime that is here to stay, you know, higher rates for longer. And that name change came too soon because they might go back to Facebook because realistically, <laughs> I think, you know, as Mandeep talked about, I mean, this is just a new world. And that's why Zuckerberg finally read the room. That's why the stocks, you know, more than double from bottom because they need to cut significant costs, double down on social media. And you look at the metaverse strategy, when you look at what they're investing on, it's good money after bad. And I think this is really, it's a pivotal time for Zuckerberg, but clearly you see a new Zuckerberg in terms of how he's acting, especially on the cost side. And that's why the stock, Wall Street's rewarded it. Yeah, interesting. All right, I want to pivot to Uber and Lyft because they, there was an interesting story that I really found interesting. Um, California says that these drivers are, in fact, gig workers. An appeals court, right? Backing Prop 22. Yeah, and to me, that's kind of existential to the entire business model. If you don't have that ruling, you don't have a company, a business. Mandeep, talk to us about kind of what you learned there and what it means for these companies. Yeah, so look, if you are operating in the U.S. as a gig economy company, this is huge because it's setting up a precedent where all these companies can operate with the current business model. They don't have to do anything in terms of changing their cost structure. And we've seen with Uber, they are clearly showing operating leverage. So to me, this is a positive sign that the scale players in this business, your Uber and DoorDash, will likely benefit more simply because they have that organic driver supply growth, which is what you need for you know driving top line. And if the cost structure isn't changing, I think the incremental margin will be much higher than it was before. What do you think about those companies, Dan? Look, I think Uber, it's a winner take all. I mean, right now Lyft, I go back to that was probably the worst conference call, top three that I've heard in 22 years. <laughs> They're the little brother to Uber. And right now, I mean, they just have an Everest like uphill battle competing in an environment where it's no more free money. So I'm looking at just the ANR page, uh, Dan, under your, under your bio for your recommendations. You've got a, a neutral on Lyft, uh, an outperform on Uber. So you're not just saying to buy this rat ride sharing thing. You're saying you, you need to be selective. Oh, yeah. I think Uber is the way to play. I mean, Lyft right now. I mean, that feels like sort of jumping in front of a train relative to what's happening in that business. And it feels like the management team dog ate the homework. Next time it's the weather. <laughs> Maybe they could blame, you know, traffic. And then that's been the problem in terms of just no uh, comfort in terms of this management team, the way that they navigate. And you mentioned the rates environment, right? Mandy, this rates environment seems to be something that uh, tech CEOs are waking up to. Mark Zuckerberg says... Um, 
I think we should, this is a direct quote, I think we should prepare ourselves for the possibility that this new economic reality will continue for many years. Hello. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I, I think all these are long duration uh, stocks. So when you think about, you know, the terminal value of these businesses, you have to discount them at the uh, rate where we are right now. And that's where you will never see a software or an internet company trading at 40, 50 times sales anymore. And I, I think that's the realization everyone is having, that there is a cap in terms of the multiple these companies can trade at. All right, let's pivot to digital advertising. Um, I'm thinking Meta, you know, all that kind of stuff, Google. Where are we in that trend, Mandeep? Because, I mean, you know, when I was covering these stocks, they were going nothing but up. Um, so I don't know what you guys are doing. And that's because I had this secular 20% growth story in digital ad spending, and I don't know where it was coming from, radio, TV, magazine, wherever. Where, what's the story there now? So look, there will always be a secular kind of transition from linear TV to uh, the digital app platforms. And that trend is intact. I think with connected TV, you are probably gonna see some more tailwinds. The problem with digital ad businesses, it's discretionary when you compare it to a software business where you still have to uh, you know, keep your business running and you require that software. On the other hand, Ads can be shut on and off. And right now we are in an environment where businesses are focused on costs and the easiest thing to cut is your ad spend. So I do think this is gonna last a while, but we will rebound and the cyclical aspect will come into play You know, once we are in a lower rate and a better economic growth environment. How concerned are you, Dan, about that? I mean, look, I think you're seeing just the digital advertising headwinds. The Apple iOS privacy issues have continued yes. to sort of be there. Slow in economy. I do think a lot of bad news has been baked in. That's why a lot of these stocks are bouncing. Yeah. You know, and I think now you're starting to see the cut. So at least now you're preserving the bottom line in this environment. That's why tech stocks are rallying. And even now with the SVP, you know, Fed's basically handcuffed. That feels like that's gonna be positive in terms of what we're seeing on hikes for tech. And that's sort of this dynamic that's playing out with this sort of tug of war. Fed's handcuffed. Yeah. I mean, this is exactly what I was thinking on Sunday uh, after the bailout. Really, on Friday after um, the yep. the bank was taken. Right. Uh, it seemed like this is this is something the something that broke that we were waiting for, and now they're fed. done. But the, the question is, does that continue? Especially if we keep getting, you know, half percent uh, month over month core inflation increases. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm surprised we haven't seen just from our experience back in the Great Financial Crisis that we didn't go to bed Sunday night with the announcement that XYZ Bank had bought SVB. And we haven't That's seen that. That's a huge surprise. And we heard a member of Congress tell Joe Matthew on Sound On that there was an offer, um, but the regulators rejected it. Uh, hey, have you Dan? heard that too, Dan? Yeah, and look, and I think that was just something where I, the, the last thing I wanted was the contagion. They need to ring fence it. Yep. All right, guys, good stuff. Thanks so much for coming in uh, to the studio here today, talking all things tech. We love doing that. Uh, Dan Ives, Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities, and Mandeep Singh, he's a Senior Technology Analyst at uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, both in our studio here, talking all things tech. SVB seems to have been, as, as Dan was just suggesting, perhaps uh, ring fence a little bit in terms of that risk. That's what the market's kind of telling you here. The S&P up 1.8%, and I said yesterday, Matt, I thought we'd have a 2% move up in the market yesterday, but I guess people didn't want to get in front of that uh, CPI print today, but they're certainly coming in with uh, uh, both feet right now. You know, you take a look at today's CPI print, and you could say, you can make the argument, the Fed's got some more work to do there, but if you're the Fed, you got to recognize we've got some bank instability in the system here. What are you supposed to do? Let's check in with and a real expert on some of these that issues that can maybe uh, give us some headway here. Shaveen Yeltekin, Dean at the University of Rochester Business School, uh, joins us. Um, Shaveen, thank you, Shaveen. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here. Again, what do you think our Federal Reserve does? Because they have a, a balancing act vis-a-vis uh, -vis inflation and what's happening in the banking system. Oh, absolutely. Hi. Um, they're their job just got a lot harder over the last week, for sure, when we were just waiting for the kind of the unemployment report and the inflation numbers uh, this week and last week. SVB's collapse, along with its signature bank, um, this has now become a lot harder. And because we see some of the repercussions of, of banks or certain types of institutions not taking into account interest rate risk. 
um, they're going to have to balance this very, very uh, tightly. It's a tightrope. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, Matt Miller here. Um, I wonder if you think the Fed made the right move along with the other regulators involved in the Treasury in terms of bailing out the depositors of this bank. It wasn't like, you know, uh, mom and pop. This wasn't Joe Plummer in the Midwest. These were, you know, the wealthiest people uh, from, from Sand Hill Road and, and tech startups, you know, kids who are going to work at places with ping pong tables in the cafeteria. So, you know, was it necessary and, and does it create moral hazard? Oh, it absolutely creates moral hazard because, um, you know, every time you come exposed after the damage has been done to, to create more insurances and, you know, not bailing out the bank, but bailing out the depositors, it certainly creates um, moral hazard. But what's interesting about this are two things that one of which you've, you've mentioned. One of them is that this is not your regular kind of retail deposit bank. Um, very much so we have these very, very large deposits in this bank from a very concentrated industry base, mostly the tech sector, some of which is in crypto, as we saw UCDC. And at the same time, um, you know, this was a, whereas it was the 16th largest bank in the United States, it, it certainly wasn't large enough to also get the scrutiny it needs in terms of managing its, its risk. So did they do the right policy? I would have liked to have had uh, heard from the Fed and FDIC that they will be guaranteeing the deposits of not just these two banks, but all banking, um, you know, throughout the banking sector. Because what is now going to still be on the minds of any depositor with a higher than 250K deposit is, well, is my bank safe? I mean, I've just received an email from my own bank saying, we're safe, you know, don't take out your deposits. I mean, not exactly those words, but... Um, but this <laughs> well, you don't have to worry now. I mean, didn't the Fed implicitly say, we got your back? Don't worry about the insurance level. I mean, that's a joke. Carson Block from Muddy Waters said, you know... Uh, Corporate depositors should be expected to manage their counterparty risk. But bailing out uninsured depositors at SVB, which are mostly corporates, further infantilizes markets by sending the message that such risk management is anachronistic. Wow. Yes, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, this, this wasn't something completely unexpected. Yes, we've seen an increase, uh, you know, quick increase in interest rates over the last year. But for anybody who's, who, who is in risk management in terms of understanding the maturity structure, this is not a liquidity issue. You can think about the Fed coming in and providing some liquidity. This is an insolvent bank. Um, they manage their assets very badly compared to especially the kind of deposits that they were getting, very short-term, very large deposits. And we still don't know what else is on their books. You know, we know about the Treasury bonds, uh, and we know that they sold those at a loss, but we have no idea about the other uh, loans and investments that they have made. Huge, huge issue for the Fed going forward, and the amount of Fed backup that's being provided as well. I mean, that's very small compared to the amount of uninsured deposits in the economy. So, you know, whether it's a joke or not, um, it, it does feel a little bit like cheap talk. I, I agree. Hey, Shaveen, the last time we spoke to you, you were, it was in our studios here in New York City, and you were, I believe, on your way to your native Turkey for a visit. And there's a country and there's a people that have had such incredible challenges thrown their way, most recently in terms of uh, the earthquakes. What did you find? What was your experience over there? Oh, it's it's even more devastating on the ground. I didn't go exactly to, to the area where uh, where the earthquake happened, but I was in Istanbul in the northwest part of the country. But, um, you know, it's in the news all day long and the devastation. We have an election coming up in May. Um, that's, of course, you know, combined with the devastation. And it's just completely rattled all the markets. I mean, the, the Turkish lira continues to lose its, um, you know, its value. Um, there isn't, you know, there's a scrambling of kind of the government trying to provide some sort of aid, both in kind as well as in, in monetary aid to those affected by the by the earthquake. But this is going to also, of course, provide, um, you know, give up huge burden, just just 
deliver a huge burden on the government and on the taxpayers at the end of the day. It's a very devastating situation. I, it's going to take a very long time to get from underneath it, to be honest. What is the expectation when this, uh, as this election comes up? Because, again, as you mentioned, um, it'll be a referendum on maybe how the government dealt with all these challenges and maybe who's best prepared to deal with them going forward. What's, what's the expectations or what did you experience when you were in, in Turkey? Well, that was the interesting thing. When I was there, um, you know, there's an, uh, there isn't really a single opposition party that's strong enough to be able to provide a, an alternative, um, single-handedly individual alternative to the AKP, the reigning party. But there had been a coalition of six parties coming together to uh, unite and to provide an alternative at the ballot box. That coalition actually fell apart while I was there. So I was staying up really late listening to all the news and listening to all the political commentary that was happening. They tried to sort of um, re, you know, reinstitute it a little bit as I was leaving the country, but it's very, very mm-hmm. fragile. And unfortunately, I think um, that has uh, strengthened the position of AKP despite their mishandling of the... Of the all right, Shabin. Thank you so much. I really appreciate getting your thoughts on, obviously, the economic issues that we love uh, discussing with you, the business issues, but also just kind of getting your experiences from your recent trip to your uh, native Turkey. We've all seen the the devastation there. Shaveen Yeltekin, she is the dean at the University of Rochester Business School, Uh, just an extraordinary background, undergrad at Wellesley, Ph.D. in economics from Stanford. Uh, so she knows herself, and that's why we like t- to talk to smart people like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she, I'm sure, knows a lot of the people um, who were involved in uh, SVB because that's where they banked. You know, Stanford yep. grads get yeah. out of school. If they're uh, fortunate enough if, that the U.S. lets them stay and work here, <laughs> right. um, they start businesses that uh, hire people, but they get their banking or they got it at SVB. All right, we're going to have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Chris Whalen, he's a chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. He joins us here. Hey, Chris, we don't see a bank run very often. What did you take from no. the the news on Friday with a- a- SVB? Um, it was a disaster. Uh, bad risk management by the bank. They were loading up on mortgage-backed securities in anticipation of a Fed pivot, but they were early. Um, and they had been doing this for years. They had an outsized position in these securities. And then the Fed, you know, added to the problem. The real issue I think we have to deal with, and, you know, the crisis is not over, guys. There's stuff going on in the background I can't even talk about that is really mind-numbing. But, you know, the Fed created securities in 2020 and 21 that you cannot hedge. Uh, The hedge is twice the coupon or more. So tell me again why we want to own these securities. The Fed should have bought them all. I swear the Fed should have bought every single security from that period and just hold on to it because it is unfair. Well, they will lend, you know, uh, against them now. You you can get uh, 100% for collateral. Does that make any uh-huh. sense to you, Chris? Because I kind of yeah. want to buy SVP yeah. and then load up on a whole bunch of crappy bonds that are only trading at 75 cents on the dollar and then use them as collateral for sweet loans. Well, no, but remember, these aren't crappy bonds. These are AAA-rated securities with a zero risk weight under Basel. But the market risk, because the coupons are so low, is astronomical. You can't even measure it. So if I finance collateral like this today, I'm going to haircut it to market value. I have to. So, Chris, do you feel right? like this SVB issue, I'll even go out to Signature Bank as well, is kind of mm. – uh, ring-fenced, if you will, or do you think there's no. more risk out there in the no. banking system? Well, it was nice to see First Republic rally. I think all their clients and advisors came in and bought the stock this morning. I'm not really worried about the bank. You notice Jamie came in and supported them, too, J.P. Morgan, yeah. uh, because First Republic is a big issuer of non-QM mortgages. Guess who's the leader in that space? Chase. Guess who's the biggest war- warehouse lender in that space? Chase. Yep. So, you know, everything has a reason, but I'm very worried about smaller banks. And by small, I mean triple digits, okay? I mean large regionals because they are being forced to do things to hold on to uninsured deposits that I think are untenable. I think within a matter of days, if not a week or so, we're going to have another bank 
but in big trouble. Are, are there still oh. uninsured deposits? I thought uh, the implicit message um, from um, the regulators was that you're, you you're covered. And, no, no, no. It's, they had to make a systemic risk exception. When they passed Dodd-Frank, uh, the tactic that Sheila Bear used, remember she extended yep. coverage to all of the transaction accounts because when Treasury guaranteed the money market funds, the banks were losing their money. They were all going into the guaranteed assets. So we have the same problem today. I, I think it's a matter of prudence. We should extend the blanket. They should go to Congress, ask them to act now, uh, or maybe we'll have a systemic risk exception for everybody. Uh, but, I, you know, we still have a problem. I think the Fed should drop rates 50 bips, and I think they should open their discount window very similar to what they did with the collateral and say, if you want to sell us that bond back, we'll take it at par, and we'll hold it until you want it back. But you know? okay, but they're, so they're 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 unlikely to do that right now, Chris. What does that mean um, we, in terms of those other regional banks with triple digit uh, deposit bases, triple digit billions in deposits? Are they are, are we going to see more bank runs? You think in the next couple weeks? Yes, because look at what happened with Signature. Signature is different than Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley was just a management mistake, frankly, and the regulators took their eye off the ball. Why do you think Janet Yellen was on TV Sunday? She didn't have a plan, but she was worried about the blowback on the Fed and her former colleagues at San Francisco, and they dropped the ball. They didn't even look at the data. It was right there. So what's going to happen is that small, mid-sized banks are going to be under attack, especially if they're public. The shorts are going to come after them. They have the list, right? And I think that the bankers are going to try and hold on to their deposits, but if they start going down, as we saw with Signature, right? They lost 20% of deposits in three quarters. A bank can't do that. You know, we we spoke, Chris, we spoke with with Barney Frank yesterday, which I thought was a very interesting conversation. He said a number of things that I found fascinating. Number one, he said Signature was not insolvent. They were singled out because of their work with crypto. Number two, he said uh, he didn't have any problem with the 2018 amendments to Dodd-Frank. There's no reason that they need extra scrutiny. Uh, And number three, he didn't think that we needed really any more um, bank regulation. I know. Well, he's right about regulation. If we're not going to enforce the rules and review the numbers that banks provide us, then why do we need more regulation, right? I mean, seriously, guys, it's right in the data. You can see 40% of total assets, mortgage-backed securities, and you know that they can't hedge those securities. But the problem is the folks at the Board of Governors who took over bank supervision after 2008, they basically took it away from the reserve banks. So they have no connection with the markets, and they're sitting there looking at their data, and they don't realize that this whole class of securities for really two years during COVID uh, are toxic waste. It might as well be subprime mortgages. You know what I'm saying? Even though yeah. it has a triple A rating. And the people have a hard time with this. They say, Chris, this is a treasury bond. But, Why shouldn't I buy it? So, Chris, the is, is, is the next risk. bank to go, you know, if I screen on the Bloomberg and look for other banks that have such a huge hold to maturity portfolio, I don't see anything that looks like as bad a mismatch as SVB. No, no. Look at the funding, Matt. Look for banks that have large blocks of uninsured deposits tied to commercial customers. You see, let me give you some context here. You guys always love this at Bloomberg. (laughs) The last 10 years of Fed benevolence and low interest rates allowed a lot of business models to flourish. Business models that might not have done well in a less hospitable environment, Silicon Valley, Signature. Because remember, these guys compete with big banks. The big banks are right there. And so they were able to carve out niches for themselves, but I think we're going into a much less friendly environment now, and I think you're going to see big-time consolidation. I expect to see a number of banks get bought to avoid being taken down by the FDIC. So I'm still unclear as why the regulators or how the regulators missed this. That seems to be the most immediate issue. You know, we're all human. We're all conflicted agents. It's like my friends in the ratings world. You know, S&P acted today. They downgraded the banks across the board and said, hey, we have a problem. Uh, but the whole industry should have downgraded every rating they had after quantitative easing was over. You know, when you move 500 basis points, think about what that means in terms of ratings. 
Okay, 500 basis points is barely investment grade. So if you subject us, you know, stress tests, remember the Fed does stress tests, but they don't understand bonds. And you right. guys said, Bloomberg, do you're the best bond shop in, in the world of media. So think about stressing a portfolio of Ginny May security, 600 basis points, guys. What's the answer? The answer is you're insolvent. Okay. <laughs> right. Yep. So any first-year banking associate knows this. Barney Frank would know this. He's a smart guy, All right. for Christ's sake. But, you know, we have to do the work. Yep, I got it. it. Hey, Chris, we've we got to go for time. But thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts. Clearly non-consensus from my perspective. I hope we can get you back on again soon as well. Absolutely. Chris Whalen, chairman of the Whalen Global Advisors. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's dive in here because we got a Federal Reserve meeting February 22nd. That is going to be very interesting. And I'm glad I'm not Fed Chairman Jay Powell because he's kind of got, uh, you know, a balancing act here. Um, so let's check in with Jeff Cleveland. Uh, Jeffrey Cleveland is the director and chief economist of Payton Regal. So, Jeff, Jeffrey, I'm going to put you in the hot seat. You're Fed Chairman Jay Powell. Uh, next uh, week on the 22nd, what do you do and why? I don't want the job. You can, you can keep the job. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy where I am. That's a tough. That's a tough call. I guess I think. Given the current situation, it'd be prudent to pause here, just let the dust settle. I mean, I think you could – one of the reasons we have the financial instability is due to the the last 12 months and the, the rate hikes that have been put into the system. So maybe it would be prudent just to take a step back. The problem with that is inflation. Uh, so when I, you know, I looked at that report this morning, 0.5% month-to-month for – the core CPI, and you know, I'd love to look at this median CPI mm-hmm. that the Cleveland Fed tabulates later in the morning, and that thing for the month of February came in uh, even hotter, right? That thing is 0.6% month-to-month after a 0.7% month-to-month rating the prior month. On a year-on-year basis, uh, I think that's a, a record high for the series, 7.2% year-on-year for the median price change. So that tells me there is a lot of underlying inflation, um, just way too hot. So I think the Fed has to address that as, as well. So m- maybe he's doing the best he can here. He's going to use the balance sheet to address the financial stability, um, and he's going to use the policy rate to keep batting away at inflation and try to get inflation back under control. But it's a tricky situation. Well, when we're talking about bringing inflation back to control, I, I feels like one of the arguments here is that in the here and now, financial stability matters more than price stability for kind of the average consumer. And I wonder that for those those folks who are saying that's the trade-off you kind of have to make for this Fed decision, to what extent does that imply that at the next meeting, they have to be even more hawkish? I think that's a, it, it's tricky. I mean, I still get uh, friends and family and colleagues and clients even that say to me, you know, um, that the bigger problem is inflation, you know, that that's what they're really feeling in terms of what's eating into their their income, uh, what they're facing, you know, uh, in terms of energy costs or at the at the gas pump. So I don't know. I think there could be a healthy debate over 
um, what's the what is the the primary concern? I do think, though, at the end of the day, a central bank. What is the job of a central bank? I mean, first and foremost, it's it's the banker's bank, right? It's to keep the financial system healthy. So they they do have to take to take that into account. Uh, but these, I think, these two are at odds. Is I guess what I'm trying to express. Um, if you want to rein in inflation then you need to continue to hike and that will continue to send us down this road where there will probably be other institutions that uh, get into trouble. Maybe this is just the, the beginning of that phase here. This is uh, sort of August of 2007 um, type period. And then there will be more, there'll be more volatility ahead. Jeff, what we don't hear much about, I guess recently, maybe it's just because we're dealing with a, a good old fashioned bank run is the economy in just terms of recession where are you right now in kind of your recession call for the U.S. economy? Well, all the data we saw, you know, up until middle of last week was pointing towards the no landing scenario. Um, so, you know, you had very you had a pretty strong GDP uh, tracking for the first quarter, strong consumer spending the last couple of months. You have inflation that's still elevated. You have the unemployment rate that's, uh, you know, flirting with a 50-year low. And we saw that jobs report on Friday, more than 300,000 jobs. So uh, as far as the data that we have to date, it's, it's holding up really well. And for us, the probability of a recession um, in, in 2023 was, had fallen. Um, we thought we would get through the year without one. Once you start to see financial concerns, when financial conditions start to tighten, um, then we get a, a bit more concerned. But as you've seen you know, this morning, uh, this can change day by day. So fi actually, financial conditions have eased to today. So, well, I think we're just gonna have to we're just gonna have to sit back and wait here. There's you know seven more days and eight more days until the Fed meeting. So a lot can uh, transpire. Yeah, uh, five trading sessions exactly. And I have to ask: in these <laughs> next five trading sessions, what could be the game changer for the Fed, or is everything in the rearview mirror here? I think the key thing is the, is is the contagion contained. Um, do we get do we get improvement um, on that front? So you're seeing that I think with uh, bank stocks that gives you a little sign of where the market is thinking about the risks um, around financial stability. So you need to we need to see some more signs that maybe this is contained. It's a it's a one off. It's an isolated type event. It's not going to be a uh, a systemic issue. Well, see, um, are, I gotta ask, more. I gotta push back on that. Are they contained though? Are they stable? Given that a rally, we're looking at rallies of say forty fifty percent in one stock. That's not normal, even for a regional bank. Yeah, you made a great point earlier though about the. Uh, we highlighted this in our quarterly uh, for the fourth quarter that came out, just the liquidity issues in the financial system, um, at least with regard to treasuries, liquidity and the bond market in general. I, I do think you're liable or you're vulnerable to some pretty sharp uh, air pockets, if you will, or sharp movements in security prices, just given the structure of the marketplace. Um, I think you're quoting Ira Jersey, just looking at the, the size of the, the bond market relative to the dealer system that has to intermediate all those transactions. So you get big movements in prices. Um, I think, you know, that could, that could continue. Jeff, what's your GDP call going out like this year and next year? Um, you know, maybe there is a little recession in there, but What's the, the call for you guys? Right now we have 0.6% real GDP Q4 to Q4 for 2023. And uh, we do think it's prudent to think about a recession. Uh, so a contraction in GDP in 2024. Uh, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. uh, right now somewhere around half a percent, maybe to a percentage point. So uh, that's more of a garden variety downturn that you might have seen in the post-war era. But that's our that's our current thinking. Um, like I said, though, the, first, the data out to start the first quarter was tracking uh, much better than that. So um, you know we were we were off to a good start, and we hit we, we stumbled here, and we'll have to see how you know the next few weeks transpire. Jeff, I know you're you're based in the L.A. area. Have you heard from any of the regional banks in the Southern California area uh, about their position, their condition, their concern? Because it seems like uh, you know some of the West Coast banks with some exposure, obviously, to, to Silicon Valley and the VC community were the ones that were most at risk. You know, I was in L.A. over the weekend, and then I flew to D.C. 
on Sunday. And it was interesting, the contrast between the two coasts. So, um, you know, contacts on the West Coast were uh, very concerned about the banking system, but also about the prospects for a, a pretty severe downturn as, you know, many startups fail and, and layoffs pick up uh, on the West Coast and then the unemployment rate rises. So much more concern about the, the you know, the health of the economy and the banking system on the West Coast than when I got to, to D.C., um, on Sunday, and now I'm in London. So I, I don't know. I guess I'll find out tomorrow what the view is here. Actually, there's an interesting um, comparison here. I think that it's worth thinking about. The Bank of England faced some financial stability issues um, in, in the gilt market last fall, as you well know, and they dealt. They chose to deal uh, deal with that with a, a temporary program, and they kept they maintained the pressure on the overnight rate to deal with the inflation problem here. So similar path maybe uh, will be uh, pursued by the Fed. Where they will, you know, they're very attentive. They don't want a financial crisis. Uh, they don't mind if the unemployment rate rises because they think the inflation will come down, but they don't want a financial crisis. So they can deal with that with the balance sheet and then try to conduct um, uh, their inflation control campaign with the, with the overnight rate. So, All right. Well, enjoy uh, London. Uh, have a good time there. Jeffrey Cleveland, director and chief economist, Payton and Regal. Cole Elam. Uh, president and CEO of the National Bankers Association uh, joins us. Nicole, thanks so much for taking the time here. Help us put into perspective what we've seen with some of these regional banks over the last several days. How concerned are you that this is systemic for some regional banks or it's really kind of ring-fenced to a handful of names? Yeah, so so thank you for having me today. We are seeing three big ways that it's, it's impacting us and that I imagine will continue. The first is impacting customers. There is certainly a deposit flight as customers are moving their deposits and really their banking relationships to big Wall Street banks that are now being perceived as too big to fail post-2008. We're also paying attention to its impact on regulators. We certainly applaud uh, this administration and regulators for being swift in their response. But one thing that we know is that this facility is going to need to be paid for. And is it going to be paid off of the back of small community banks, particularly those banks who have asset sizes under $3 billion? Are they going to be the ones that are now having to bail it out? Uh, we also know that the Hill and regulators are responding with new regulations and new and new legislation. And typically when you have something like this that happens, there's this one-size-fits-all approach that can be really burdensome on minority and community banks. And so I think you're going to continue to see deposit flight to Wall Street banks that are too big to fail. You're going to continue to see regulators maybe take, uh, as well as policymakers on the Hill, continue to maybe think about a one-size-fits-all approach and how they address this. Well, put this into some perspective for us, because my understanding was, to your point of who's going to pay for this, is that the fund already exists with the the Fed slash the FDIC, a fund that banks, large and small, Mm -hmm. contribute to based upon the amount of risk taking they do. So aren't the funds already allocated for that? The funds are there, but when something like this happens, there is, uh, you do have the right to have what's called a special assessment. And I think how exactly that special assessment has, is going to be done is going to be, is going to be a challenge. Uh, that's something that is still being talked about and discussed. So, Nicole, do you believe, or the National Bankers Association believe that Dodd-Frank should be kind of applied to not just the large banks, uh, the too big to fail, but to regional banks as well. You know, this idea of keeping the banking system safe is something that is important regardless of your asset size, whether you're a small bank or a Wall Street bank. That sentiment of keeping the financial system safe is something that is important. I think whether it's Dodd-Frank or just in general regulations that tend to be responses to something like as, as cosmic as this, what tends to happen is that you don't have regulations that take into consideration the uniqueness of these small banks, right? So you have regulations that may have capital requirements that don't fit the capital requirement needs of a small bank. And so what tends to happen is that while increased regulations may be needed for all, you cannot have a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think oftentimes that's what you tend to see is a one-size-fits-all approach that can be unfairly burdensome on small banks. And, and Nicole, some uh, some critics or some observers of the banking industry say, 
hey, it just needs to have better enforcement of what's already there. I mean, I could have looked at SVB's balance mm-hmm. sheet and noted the mismatch yep. between their deposits and the duration of their yeah. uh, investments. What happened, do you think? It, it's very interesting because it is uh, they did have a rapid growth, non-traditional model that, you know, you would not have thought that that would have uh, it would have it would have passed the stress test. And so I do think it causes you to, to wonder, um, were they not paying attention? Was this for the sake of we want to be innovative? Um, what was going on here? But one would one would have seen if you're growing 315% in the last two years, how are you passing these stress tests? Um, and that's a, that's a problem because it's not the creation of something new. It's, as you noted, there was already something there. Well, in terms of those stress tests, I have to ask, a lot of people are saying, look, a lot of these kind of investment uh, C-suite folks had said – had not properly hedged the duration risk that they were taking on. Is there a market angle to this? Were these, were, was there a way that this could have been prevented from the folks who were making these investment decisions? Yeah, so I think what it really goes to show is that Silicon Valley and Signature Bank have um, a model that is not reflective of most banks in the country. It is very much a rapid growth, non-traditional model that has unstable deposit bases. And so the, the challenge is they had high concentrations of VC, tech startups, and crypto. And when you have all of those things happening at the same time, um, and including uninsured deposits, which 98% of my banks uh, have MDI deposit accounts that are that are insured. So when you have all of those things happening at the same time, it's a challenge. I think part of the issue is is that there are only but a handful of crypto banks, right? Crypto is something that there's lots of debate about, but most could say that it's not regulated. And so when you have something like crypto, it's also reminiscent to me of marijuana banking, right? When you have these types of industries where they're not as regulated, and so it ends up being consolidated into a couple of banks, it becomes very, very risky. Nicole, do you expect, or does the National Bankers Association expect more failures from regional banks in the coming weeks and months? I don't know that I would expect more failures. I think we made it through the pandemic where you didn't see a decline that you saw post-2008 crisis, where you saw a decline in regional banks, um, and particularly community banks, not so much regional banks, but you saw a decline in these community banks. You did not see this post the pandemic. I think this was the exception and not the rule, again, given the fact that these were banks that are not reflective of most banks in the country. That's what led to their failure. And so I don't think that you'll continue to see that. All right, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your perspective here during this time of uh, uncertainty around the regional bank uh, business. Nicole Elam, president and CEO of the National Bankers Association, uh, joining us there. She's based down uh, in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.